Welcome to Talking Trauma with Knots, episode number two. Today we're talking with Dr. Jeff Claridge, the Trauma Medical Director at Metro Health Medical Center and former Medical Director of the Northern Ohio Trauma System, uh, the man that was involved with bringing me into Knots, and I thank him for that. And uh, welcome to Talking Trauma with Knots, Dr. Claridge. Thanks, Todd. It's good to hear you kind of uh, moving the bar as we knew you would. Uh, I think it was a good decision to bring you on, and you've done a great job. So thanks a lot, man. This is an, off, uh, an offer that uh, I couldn't refuse. Although I have to tell you, I'm a little disappointed. I hear I'm number two. I thought you were going to come to me, number one, but probably because my schedule, we missed each other. So well, anyway, I'm excited. Well, you do have kind of a tight schedule. I do know I can count on you Sunday afternoon during Browns games for a text, though. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite. Yes. <laughs> So we brought Dr. Claridge in, and one of the things that we wanted to talk to Dr. Claridge about was just trauma assessments in general. And I, I think one of the things that we oftentimes forget as EMS providers is um, the role that we play in the trauma system and, and how what we're doing in the field really mirrors a lot of what you do in the hospital, and, and you obviously have a lot more tools. So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, if folks haven't been down to Metro during a trauma, it's it's like an orchestra of things that are happening and led by the trauma surgeons when you walk in. So I was wondering if you could kind of share just what a routine trauma is like for you at Metro and, and kind of what you do when you walk into that room and how you assess patients and how that kind of compares to what we do. Yeah, thanks. That's a good question um, and, and uh, a good observation. I, I think the first thing to say is we actually couldn't do our job or save lives or uh, have some of the great outcomes that we have at Metro if it wasn't for uh, free hospital providers and EMS. Um, it, we are extremely uh, reliant on them to get us patients and to transmit information in a very short time. So, you know, I think there's a few things. Uh, I, you're the, I love the word use of routine because we see so many different chaotic things that what's routine is we have no idea what's coming through the door. For me personally, uh, I just want to know kind of what category they are and mechanism uh, when I'm going walking down to think about it. Um, I try to clear my mind when I come in the room and, you know, the best part is that I never know exactly what to expect. So again, kind of get to, to, to what we're looking for when we, we uh, assess a patient. The first thing we want is that report from EMS. It is critical to get that report. So we try to quiet the room and give time. On the other hand of that, I, I want to be clear and say, we don't need a long report. Um, we don't need to hear, you know, the details of the scene to the nth degree. While interesting, we want to hear about those maybe a little after. Um, we want to hear how is the patient doing and how have they done since you got them. And, you know, I think it's still... Uh, I don't know if I'm dating myself, but using the ABCs, is their airway okay, is their breathing okay, is their circulation? How have their vitals been? And what are you concerned about? Because you are our first eyes and ears. You did that initial assessment. We want to know what you're worried about. Um, and, and that's really that first question. And that should take a minute or two, but it is very valuable. What was the last blood pressure that you had? Uh, to me, it's very important. So you'll hear me say, what were the last vitals you had? Because sometimes, as you know, in some of these traumas, their vitals are pretty sketchy and it's sometimes hard to get. And if you say, we really couldn't get a good set of vitals, that takes my, uh, my, my level of concern goes way up. I was going to say sphincter tone, but I don't know if we can say that on, on this. So I have to choose my words carefully. Yes. Um, 
So does that kind of answer your initial thing? We really just want to get the report and what the the EMS providers, what, what were they worried about? Were they worried about the airway? Were they worried about certain wounds? Was the patient trapped for a long period of time? Are they moving everything? So that initial A, B, C, D, E that we all learned, uh, we want to hear that very quickly. Uh, and then we kind of take over the evaluation of the patient. We kind of do it all at the same time. For penetrating injuries, we're exposing the patient while we're evaluating their airway, while we're evaluating their breathing, and while we're evaluating their blood pressure. Um, it, it happens simultaneously at our place, but we have the advantage of having the resources of having to be able to do this all at the same time. We organize it in our mind in the ABC, but it's really happening at the same time. Uh, again, but we're the first bit of information that we really have that's really reliable is that pre-hospital notification, which is not always reliable. It's that initial one to two minute communication with EMS that really sets the tone for what we need to do. And if someone says they lost a lot of blood, they've been tachycardic, and they're hypotensive at the scene, you can bet you believe we've already upgraded that to a Cat 1, and our, we are, you know, it's full court press. You know, you brought up something that I didn't really think about just when you were answering the question, and that is, what did EMS, what was the critical thinking of EMS that prompted them to come to a trauma center? Because some of them, you know, we, we talked about our red, yellow, and greens, and sometimes when we triage, it's pretty easy. A red is pretty easy to triage sometimes, but maybe on other occasions, it's those yellows that maybe our critical thought process might give you some insight to what we saw that you're never going to be able to see. Do you know and, what I mean? And I think that's to do with the scene stuff, too, that we don't appreciate. I am not an expert of pre-hospital evaluation. I, I rely on the team. And so if you say this person was found at the bottom of the stairs and, you know, it's been clear that they're laying there for a while and there's a bunch of blood at the scene, that, that means a, a lot, although their mechanism might be, hey, fell three steps, um, you know, you can kind of uh, assess that better than we can and, and know the assessment of the scene. As you know, age plays a big role in this. Uh, we're, we're pretty vigilant in knots uh, and in our region of uh, an elderly person who falls or has a, a trauma, um, we're, we're more sensitive to and we have a lower bar for them triggering trauma activation. So age is a big factor as well. Yeah, and I think passing on that critical thought process along the way too, you know, like you said, mechanism, even motor vehicle crashes, impingement in the passenger compartment, um, I guess I never really thought about that until you were talking, and I'm thinking, huh, yeah, what made me think about sending my patient to you? You know, the easy ones, some guy was shot in the chest, that, that's pretty easy. But some of these older folks and some of these maybe less mechanisms, um, the presence of anticoagulants um, may not be that cat one for, you know, the trauma center, but our critical thought process might be valuable in helping understand where we were at when we made a decision to bring them to you. Um, and then as you're getting that report, I'm guessing that you do a lot of what we do. And, and I always called it the doorway assessment. You know, as you walk in the door while somebody may be talking to you and your eyes are on the patient, what are some of the things that you're looking, you know, before you even touch them, what are some of those things that you're looking at or you see that kind of guide the direction of where you take their care? Yeah, it, it does. I mean, the, again, the higher the acuity or the more things seem a little off on the report, and again, sometimes it's the subtle things that you hear in the report, patient hasn't moved, et cetera, et cetera. But one, I look at how fast the crew's bringing the patient in. 
if they're walking in at a leisurely pace and they're talking and they're, you know, as they roll into the room, I'm less concerned because the crew is less concerned. So that's one. I actually usually will ask the patient their name when they wheel by me. If they say their name, I feel more comfortable. I actually will try to touch if they've already taken off their shoes or feet. I'll actually put my hand on their feet to see if they're warm. So these are really subtle things that we do. One, you're kind of introducing yourself to the patient before they're in the room. You're introducing yourself to the EMS crew saying hello or good to see you again. But you're getting a sense of how worried they are. And again, you're getting a sense of circulation when you put your hand on that person's hand or that person's foot. You introduce yourself. You know, if you're whisking by and you can't, you get a wisp of air out of the patient and that person's feet are cold, you know, we're moving on that rapidity, how rapid we do the assessment immediately. So, you know, then you get, you know, I said you get two minutes before and then you get a minute and 30 seconds to kind of give your report and move the patient over. And we're going to be simultaneously exposing the patient. And I think what's neat is you're doing the same thing we are. Yeah, you're doing the same thing we are. We walk up to a scene and, and exactly, they're answering questions. I got an A, I got a B, and I got a C. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. And, and we trust that initial report, and we want to know, you know, as you're walking by us, kind of your level of concern from your initial assessment. And then we just take it to the next level. Um, you know, our first job is to rule out life-threatening injuries, and, and I teach that. We teach a lot of residents. We teach fellows. We teach nurses. Uh, we teach uh, APPs or advanced uh, practice providers, uh, and we teach ourselves. So, you know, these are things that uh, we have to show a good example for. Um, so we give them that information as we, you know, teach the, the course too. So ask what the airway was, ask what the breathing was, uh, and then assess it as soon as we can in the room. And you'll hear us call that out loud so that everybody hears that report after um, EMS has given their report. And I think that's one of the things that I've noticed even in the trauma center with as many people as, as you have in an activation, communication's important. And I think that's something that, that uh, you know, we can all learn from. And I think, you know, the FAA talks about communication. There's classes specifically with communication, repeating, um, making sure that you're acknowledging um, information that's received and then making sure that the team all is on the same page. So another question I've always had, and again, watching from afar, you know, because I don't participate in your in the trauma rooms there is, you know, what are some of those you talked about life threatening? So what are some of the things that you do? You know, we're trying to make that determination in the field. Is this somebody that has a, a you know, an immediate threat to loss of life or limb? So what are the, what are some of the things that you look for? And what are some of those things that prompt the OR? You know, I know you guys do exploratory laps like what are some of those things that you look for to identify this is a stable patient that I can continue to manage in the emergency department versus this is a patient that needs to immediately to go to the OR? Yeah, so some things, you know, you can have a bad airway that we, we don't, doesn't need to go to the OR, and so we'll try to assess that quickly in the emergency department, uh, just like you would in the field. Is this airway okay, and can they make it to the hospital? We have to look at, is this airway okay? Are they oxygenating? Are they breathing? Are they protecting their airway? And can they make it further for us to do further workup, which usually involves, if it's a blunt mechanism, they're probably going to get a scan of some sort and certainly some x-rays, right? So we want to make sure they're protecting that airway and that they are breathing and oxygenating. And so that's, that's a really a critical part of that first assessment. 
we kind of split things into blunt and penetrating, which is really maybe a little bit of a gross exaggeration, but it, it worked. Penetrating, we're, we're going to expose at the same time, and we're going to see where their wounds are. And depending on where the wounds go and where where we see evidence of wounds, actually, again, makes us think this patient's going to go to the operating room or we're going to need to do a procedure. So in general, if we get the penetrating uh, injuries, we want everything off. We want the collar off. We want them exposed. We want to see where these wounds are. If we have a penetrating torso injury, uh, so we see a gunshot wound or some sort of hole to the torso, and they're hypotensive, that patient, we're alerting the OR to get ready. We might not even know what we're going to do yet, but we're alerting them to get ready, and we're going to go to the OR until we rule out a reason to go to the operator. So it's a different mindset. So I think that that's something that we, again, that's why we need to know where those injuries are on penetrating. Is that where the saying One trauma naked comes from? Is that is that where the saying trauma naked comes from? You trauma, I, you know, I don't know. We're doing trauma talk. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, not trauma, I think that's, uh, that's an after hour. That's a different conversation. Um, okay. We try, not to, we try not to encourage that. We do, we're doing trauma talk. All right. So one more question, because there's something else that's new in EMS, and I'm not sure whether you've seen it as a receiving hospital. Your thoughts on TXA, have you seen it used in these hemorrhagic shock patients? Um, Do you see any uh, um, perils with its use in EMS? Or, or, you know, are there times that you've received patients who have at least gotten the first round of TXA pre-hospital? And if so, any benefit? Yeah, and there's some benefit in the literature to giving TXA uh, in the appropriate patients uh, with the understanding that they have to get their second dose, right? So there's a second dose that has to go with it that they get the benefit. We also know that there's the downside to giving TXA to the wrong patient, and there's a higher uh, risk of thromboembolic event or clot. And so we do want to be a little cautious. I think it has to be regionally specific. So giving TXA within uh, 10 minutes versus 25 minutes is probably not a life-saving maneuver um, because um, I don't know if that small degree of time has made a difference in their outcomes. So again, we, we live in an area that's pretty, uh, we have a lot of resources in right. Northeastern Ohio or Northern Ohio. And, and uh, I think that's a great thing. So they don't have to travel that far. Um, it's an expense that EMS may not need to give. I'm not opposed to giving it under kind of rigid protocols in the right right patient population. Uh, and then as long as they get good communication and uh, that we follow up with that second dose, providing it's the right thing to do for the patient. So there is some evidence that it does improve mortality uh, at this point in time. So, but it's, if you read the studies, it's an, it's an only a smaller subset of patients. And we learned this from military uh, uh, as well. Um, so I think that those things we can transfer to the bedside. I think the big mover now is just going to be, and again, we've shown it in our area with the pamper study using plasma, uh, more than IV fluid. And now you're going to see it as we move towards other types of blood resuscitation, uh, whether it's whole blood or components, separate, you know, components of blood. I think you're going to see that's going to move. And again, I'm hopeful in our region, we can, uh, kind of move that needle as we did with, uh, plasma, uh, up front. I think those are bigger, bigger, I don't hate to use the word guns, but bigger tools to use uh, uh, to stop bleeding than TSA. Well, That's I, my opinion. And I also think, I, I think um, the education of EMS providers on the use of fluids, because I know, uh, 
I'm older than you are, unfortunately. Um, not by much. I know, but but I remember both when we were young, strapping men with no gray in our hair. You know, the standard treatment was two large bore IVs and and pumping people full of fluid. And I think one of the things that we've learned specifically with, you know, room temperature, normal saline, arbitrarily giving fluid to people who um, maybe didn't indicate the need for fluid probably helped improve outcomes. Um, I know back in my day when I started, you know, putting 14 gauge IVs in anacubes and running two or three bags of saline in somebody was... You know, that was kind of the the ideal management of a trauma patient, regardless of what their blood pressure or mean arterial pressure was. Um, I'm hoping that in the trauma center, you're seeing people coming in now that aren't aggressively fluid management, uh, fluid managed. You know, that that our education in the field is is helping, and again, hopefully, some of that helps outcomes. No, I definitely think it it, it is. I think that it's a it's a two way street. We learn from each other. Um, and uh, I, I, I think knowing that we shouldn't give a bunch of fluid to patients, uh, especially with penetrating injuries or bleeding, is, has been transmitted uh, to the field. Get access. Giving a liter of fluid is totally fine, but pouring it in liter after liter is not a good idea. Um, so, uh, and again, I think that all this pre-hospital work that we've done with the Department of Defense and that have been done in the military uh, is, is making it to uh, pre-hospital EMS. Well, that's great. So the, so the last thing I want to kind of ask you about is, you know, we talked about that assessment and we, and we talked about, you know, sometimes it's that doorway assessment, what you see, sometimes it's what we identify with the ABCs. What are some of the pitfalls that you potentially think that, that maybe we can improve on? I know the CDC did a study quite some time ago that looked at the geriatric population and it was pretty big. They looked at about 25,000 patients. And it, it looked like one of those areas that we as EMS providers needed to improve on is really not under triaging. Um, and, and I know, you know, I think right now, probably in all trauma centers throughout the country, geriatric falls are probably one of the biggest things that they see. Um, do you see that as a big pitfall for us as well? I, I think it's, I, I would be cautious with the word pitfall. I think it, it does require more resources than in the past. Uh, I think it's a pretty clear statement and observation uh, that's supported in fact is that trauma center's number one mechanism now is fall. And they tend to be the geriatric, but you do get the industrial falls and the falls at working and falls well on a ladder that aren't geriatric, but a good percent of those are. They do, they do uh, consume more resources, but I think that's the right move uh, oh, yeah. What we've seen in the past is we've underappreciated, so they've been under triaged, and we, we're slow to discover these injuries, and they have worse outcomes because there's less, those patients have less reserve. They're on blood thinners and antihypertensives and all kinds of other comorbidities that they may have. So I, I think our, we have to be more vigilant on those patients, and, and I, I have a philosophy on older patients that might come across a little gruff like a surgeon, but... When they get into a major trauma, we need to hit them hard and evaluate them hard, do everything we can as fast as possible. And then the, on the other side of that, as soon as we get them a little better, stop all that nonsense and get them back to normal because they were living 80 without us before. So it's kind of this quick, quick, uh, you know, uh, you know, full court press or a blitz, 
if you're thinking in football terms, put the blitz on, do everything you can, and then remove it as soon as you can. And then well, fall back so into coverage. Get them back to normal. They don't yeah. need 50 new medications. And if they don't need IV fluids after the second day, stop them. So I, I would say the same thing in the scene. Yeah, it's probably okay if you just do the numbers, person fell down, but why not just up the game uh, and, and treat it with, hey, this person could have an intracranial bleed. They could have, a lot of people have very fragile spines, uh, and a small injury can cause a pretty devastating neurologic injury to some of these people who have what they call stiff spines. Um, so, so be more vigilant on that. And I think I, and another I, thing that would okay. be a deterrent, I want to kind of go back to any questions you asked about, um, you know, what's another deterrent? I forgot the term you used, Todd, but, you know, sometimes we get distracted by I want to say a really gross injury or a certain aspect of the patient care. They may have a penetrating uh, trauma to their their uh, leg, uh, or their leg is really deformed or partial amputation. We still got to look at the whole patient, and and I've seen that go uh, bad in the trauma bay, and I've seen EMS sometimes you're prioritizing on a a hand that's nearly evolved, but we miss the fact that the patient had an explosion and they've got stuff embedded in their chest, and so those are things that. Um, I think we've all been sometimes sidetracked by a devastating injury to a limb, but we got to take the whole patient first. So that's another thing I think both in the hospital when they're in the ED bay and pre-hospital, that is definitely uh, an, an opportunity to kind of make sure we keep our priorities. Yeah, and when I talked about the geriatrics, I think I think the challenge with the geriatric is you're right, the polypharmacy. Um, and one of the things I know when I do the geriatric trauma um, lecture that I talk about is the, the hard part is what is the normal set of vital signs for an 80-year-old woman that weighs 90 pounds? Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, so I, I think you're right. A high index of suspicion. Think about those anticoagulants. Again, think about, you know, they don't need significant mechanisms to have significant injuries. Um, and I know that's one of the things out, out where I'm at that, you know, we're trying to preach is if they fell and hit their head and they have a bump on their head and they're on anticoagulants, that that's a significant mechanism. Now, if that person was, you know, 16, I might go about or I may think about that a little bit differently. Um, but to your other point, yeah. Yeah. And, and to your other point, distracting injuries, you know, the grossest injury that you may have may not be the one that kills you. Yeah, it's usually not actually. Yeah, that's the that's the, the thing. If you had a mechanism that was that bad that caused that, you got to look over the rest of the patient. So one of the things I'll hit you up with in closing, and, and one of the things that I'm trying to do with this the, the the podcast is, you know, I think that this gives us an opportunity to really bring the team together. Because unfortunately, you know, EMS is out in their squads or they're at their fire stations, and physicians are in the hospital. And, and routinely, the passing that we have is, like you said, you got two, I got two minutes to let you know what's going on, and then you have a job to do. So I think this is a great way to kind of bring the trauma team, the trauma family together, and have some pretty open dialogue. So this is an opportunity for you. I don't, I don't know if you have some messages to, you know, whether it's EMS, non-trauma centers, level threes, anybody involved in healthcare. Um, Metro is a level one. They're, they're a leader in trauma in our region. If, if you had a single message that you would pass on, and I know I'm putting you on the spot because I didn't prep you with this. Yeah, you're putting me on the spot a little bit, yeah. Yeah, 
I mean, what what um, what kind of message would you send? Do you see we're doing good things? Um, do you think that this is a good method of communicating with, you know, our family outside of the hospital? Um, any closing yeah, thoughts? The, yeah, I've got a few, Todd. I think this is a, uh, I, I think this is a great idea. You know, I'd love, um, I'd love to not symposium when we could do it in person better. Not that this year was uh, bad, but it was just nice to interact with people, and and um, I, I thought that that was a huge success in our region. And I, I do have the the uh, amazing honor of having some leadership roles locally and nationally. Currently, the President East, which is the largest trauma organization, and, and I get to travel and get to see how other places do it. We should be very proud of our region, and it's always been one of my goals. And I know it's when when we hired you, and and we wanted, to, you know, we want to be someone that other areas in the country and world look at. That we want to do trauma like Cleveland does, like Northern Ohio. Uh, we have done some amazing things, and I'd like to continue to move the bar. And I think this is part of it. It's a dialogue, um, and, and you have to have that dialogue. You have to be able to talk back and forth. And truthfully, the best conversations and the best way you learn are these conversations, right? You just sit down, and you ask things, and you kind of have an open mind. We listen to what EMS providers say, and, and we listen to that, and we want to ask questions to them, and we hope it goes both ways. You should never feel intimidated to ask the doc questions. Likewise, hopefully we feel comfortable asking you questions. Um, so I think our region is doing the right thing. I just, these trauma podcasts, I think are a great idea. Uh, I have not seen them for EMS, and I hope you invite me again. I think it's fantastic. Well, I will definitely invite you back. Um, I'll, I'll plan ahead so that we can do it during the Brown season and we can have some Cleveland Browns talk. But I know you're a busy guy, and I do appreciate you taking the time. And um, for those that are listening um, if you have questions um, or you have topics that you'd like to have discussed, um, you can visit our website, www.northernohiotraumasystem.com. Um, there's a link there that you can contact us um, if you have some subspecialties. You know, Dr. Dr. Claridge is a champion for knots. Um, between our, within our system, we have expertise in everything. So if there's something that you as a healthcare provider would like to to hear or see or listen to, um, please let us know, reach out, um, and we'll be happy to try to get that resource available. So thank you all for listening again, and we hope to have a new podcast for you coming up here um, in the next week or so. Until then, be safe, and thanks for being part of the team.